people are part of the environment. And if people are part of the environment, then our first chance to, to interact with the environment in a positive way, in a sustainable way, or even figure out what we mean by sustainability is in how we interact or how we treat each other. Number one. Welcome to the Hardwood Podcast, a program dedicated to sharing ideas, thoughts, and voices of respected professionals in environmental studies that care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They all have lived and have work experiences that add to their outlook and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we on the Hardwood Podcast are committed to sharing the voice as well as making space for others to ponder our dialogues. On today's episode, we have Dr. John Francis, Planet Walker, and also just a powerful leader in the work of environment and also how do we bring people into this. I want you to really enjoy and listen to what Dr. Francis has to say as he gives us his experience from playing the banjo to traveling across the country on foot and how he understands what it's gonna take for us to make change. And as always, I ask you to send your thoughts and feedback to thomas.easley at yale.edu to let us know if you have ideas of speakers or future topics that we need to cover on the Hartwood Podcast. Thank you, Thomas, for having me. Yes, sir. Um, it is my honor, and I mean that, uh, because I've heard of you for a long time. You know, I uh, uh, saw you on the news. I've seen your 60 Minutes interview. Um, actually read, um, actually uh, some, some of your texts as well. You know, I unfortunately have not read the whole thing, so I need to educate myself again. And I just finished listening to you give an amazing lecture that opened up with playing a banjo, Chris, playing a banjo, and closed with playing a banjo. Um, and I just want to have, I just, I just wanted this time to ask you a couple of questions about your journey and also uh, about your philosophy. So we'll get started. All right. First question, why the African instrument, the banjo? That's an that's a excellent question mm -hmm. because, um, number one, I, I just love how a banjo sounds. I just love how a banjo sounds, and, and I, I, I fell in love with that. And I didn't know it was an African instrument. When I, when I chose the banjo, I did not know it was an African instrument. And it wasn't until um, many years later that I have a, a good friend in and a fellow musician, uh, Taj Mahal. And Taj was telling me, you know, that he had done the research and he said, that, that instrument comes from Africa. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I heard what Taj says and I'm gonna believe what Taj says, but <laughs> it, was, it, it wasn't until I got to the University of Wisconsin that I saw a film called The Librarian and the Banjo. And the librarian and banjo is about this librarian at the university who was really curious about the banjo and she started looking and all doing all this research and you know everybody was saying that the banjo was just an American instrument. It was made in America and uh, it was the only American instrument. And she said she had done this research and she found pictures of the banjo and she said that 
that banjo's from Africa. And she said, that in the, but in the Smithsonian, it was presented as uh, a, an American-made, American-origin instrument. And she went and she wrote letters and she wrote this and she wrote that and she never got any satisfaction until finally she went there. And she said, here's the proof, here's the, here are the documents, here are the books, here are the, look at these drawings. And they looked at it and they said, yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah, we know that. Mm. So, well, well, why doesn't it change? Why, why doesn't it say that? Mm. They said, oh, we'll change it. Mm. And they did. Okay. Yeah. So I haven't been to the Smithsonian to see if they had really changed it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that librarian, um, you know, she was she had a had a mission, and it was to get the truth out about the banjo. Yes, sir. So I appreciate it. I mean, it's a, uh, um, but I still love it no matter what. <laughs> and yes. so it's now, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I pay with the African instrument. Isn't that apropos? Mm, right. Oh, man. Well how, well, how long have you been playing, uh, you, you know, playing the banjo? Because you, you sound like a master at it. So, because it was just beautiful to listen to you play both times. Uh, I, I appreciate that. It's, it started when I stopped talking. Um, well, actually, I tried playing a banjo before I stopped talking, and I just, I just never took. I could never really get it until finally I just put it in the corner, and it was gathering dust. And uh, when I stopped talking, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally play this thing. <laughs> and so I, I carried it with me wherever I went. And if somebody knew something about it, I'd give it to them, I'd say, you know, and they'd play something for me. And they'd show me how it works. And I... So eventually, I just practiced on the road, playing on the road. So what you heard today was a, one of the tunes called Life Celebration. And that's uh, just something that I started when I started walking. And, uh, and I wasn't talking, and I just played that music. And people would tell me, they said, John, when I lived in California, they had, I'd be walking down Highway 1, and I'd be coming to a town, and they'd say, you know, we heard your banjo in the night, and we could hear it far away in the distance, and then it would get closer and closer until finally it was like at our door, and then finally it would go off in the distance, and it would go off. It's so beautiful, John. It was so beautiful. It would go off in the distance, and then finally fade. We, wouldn't, we couldn't hear it anymore. But people would tell me those kinds of stories in the, from where I, when, I, when I lived in California. Wow. I feel like I'm looking at folklore, just... Well, I should say folklore, uh, just how you, you be, well, because I, I feel a spiritual presence like around you and with you. And I, and you know, and I, and it, and it, and it to me, it looks like you are in tune with that because it, you know, if you were playing without speaking, obviously you were speaking through this, you know, it seems like, you know, or at least people heard you or part of you through this. And so I'm also curious with, I mean, your journey is fascinating. And we, we have a couple of cross, a couple of antennas, actually, because you spend a significant amount of time in Montana. I did. I did, too. I worked in Montana. I worked in Bozeman, and I worked in Red Lodge for four years. Wow. And I love your story. <laughs> you gotta hear, Chris, you got to hear the story. You know, 
don't know how you walk from California, you know, to Oregon, to Montana, to Dakota, to Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't know how you do that and still maintain gentleness, you know, but there was something that you said in the lecture today, and I want to ask you about that. But I want to ask you about it if it's literal. Okay, so here's the question. Uh, you would you would talk about when you're uh, when you graduated. Each time you graduated, you know your parents or or, or, um, or your father would come. You know, and all right, you graduated, good job. And then it was about you know how you're going to do this if you're not speaking and driving a car, right? And the way that you described it is that you shrug your shoulders. It looked like something I would do with my dad, mm, you know, but without the sound. And then you said you grab, grab your backpack and then you get your banjo and you say that, that you start walking. My question is, what was the reason for that walking away, I guess, if that, like I said, that's why I say if it's literal, but when you would encounter other people, you would engage them. I'm just curious, you know, like what was, you know, like why was, you know, like, okay, I'm going to walk away. But then when I'm meeting other people on the road, it's like, okay, now I can engage them. I can do, I can play this. I'm just curious, you know, but, but that's why I say if it's literal, you know, I, I know sometimes maybe it was another interaction maybe. And then an hour later, okay, I left and I walked away. But the impression that I got was like, oh, was this literal? Like as soon as the question goes, hmm, and then I'm off to the next journey. So that, that's my question. If that was literal, why, why was the walk away, but then engaging others in a different way? Yeah. That's a good question, and, I, and I'll answer it, and you tell me if, it's, if I'm answering it correctly for you, for the question that you, that you asked. Um, when I first went to school, I, I came out of, it sounds strange, I came out of the Kamiopsis Wilderness in Oregon and um, found myself in Ashland, Oregon, and a school there was, at the time, it was called Southern Oregon um, Southern Oregon State College, and so now it's uh, Southern Oregon University. Uh, and when I walked through there the first time, I said, wow, this is a really nice school. If I ever go to school, I'd like to go to school here. Just uh, the town seemed nice, uh, it's up in the mountains, and it was, uh, people were nice. It was uh, really a, a great environment, and so I, I lived in the county office, and when I came out, I said, I'm going to go to school here. And I went, and, and I did go to school. Um, they accepted me without, you know, talking. Uh, that was uh, very nice, and I was telling someone how I finished school in two years, because they had a program called Prior Learning Experience, um, where you would create a portfolio based on your prior learning, which was usually um, you're, you know, outside the formal education of a university. And uh, it cost $75 to get into that program. Mm -hmm. And uh, they gave you uh, all, all the tools you needed to write this portfolio. And so I spent the two years of my, my time at Southern Oregon State College putting together my portfolio which involved things that I had done outside of the university. For example, I kept bees. And I had like, oh, maybe um, 30 hives of bees when I was in California. They weren't my bees, they were a woman's bees who had asked me to be a beekeeper. And it was something I wanted, always wanted to do, is like learn how to keep bees. So I was looking for those kind of opportunities. So I, I, I kept bees for a while and that was like a, 
biology, you know, credit in biology. I got maybe three or four credits for that, for doing that. And then there was, uh, oh, the natural history of, of uh, the Kamiopsis wilderness. What, uh, well, I lived in the Kamiopsis wilderness. I worked, I built trail for the, for the uh, Department of uh, Land, uh, what was that, the Forestry Department of BLM. Bureau Bureau of Land Management. But this was also the U.S., uh, there was also a far state, I mean, a, a U.S. Forest Service, so a Forest Service. So I was building trail for them, and, and I lived with a, a, a miner who was actually a Ph.D. from Columbia, who in physical education, and uh, he was in the Coast Guard, and he had, was a homesteader, so I learned a lot from Perry Davis, and Perry and Ruth Davis, and uh, there I was, and I came out of that, I knew a lot about the Kamiopsis, and they had a nine-credit course that you would go in and maybe stay overnight for a couple times, and then you you learn about the county, the geology, the history of the county. Yeah. Yes. Well, so I could write that all up, you know. And I got people to from the Forest Service. You had to document what you're doing. You just couldn't say I know this, right. and you had to document it and get it confirmed by, uh, you know, the professors had to look at what you wrote and who confirmed that. And so I got nine credits for that. They had something called peak. Peak, oh, peak experience, which is psychology, the peak experience in the psychology credit for three credits. But I climbed Mount Shasta and I wrote about it in a magazine, a backpacking magazine, and that was a peak experience that I had converted that into those three more credits. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, I mean, I painted every day. So I had art credits. I played music, so I got string practical string practice. And, well, there was nonverbal communication, a 12-credit course. (laughs) By the time I finished, what I'm saying, Thomas, is by the time I finished, I had over two years of credit. I had like over 90 credits, and you were only allowed to use two years. Now, they expected you to get maybe three or four credits, and that was going to help the returning student, you know, get over a hump or whatever it was, and, and here it was, I had two years of credit, I had enough credit to graduate with, along with my two years that I put in. Yes, sir. And uh, so there I was, I'm graduating, and my dad comes out and he's happy, he says, how could you graduate in two years? And I, I show him and he goes, well, you know, we're really proud of you, son. We are really proud of you, but what are you going to do with this degree? You don't ride in cars and talk. And that's then when I hunch my shoulders, mm-hmm. you know, I hunch my shoulders and I pick up my backpack and I grab my banjo because I'm, I, I don't know either, <laughs> but I'm going this way. I'm going east. And my dad gets in the car and he drives on back to the airport and he's going to fly home. He came out with my, my aunt and my and my cousins, and they saw me graduate. And that was a big thrill for me and a big thrill for him. But he was really concerned. And he said all this out of concern, not out of meanness or anything. Uh, you know, I was like, what are you going to do with that degree? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. I didn't have the answer for it. 
You know, so it was, it was all I know is I'm walking across the country because when I did graduate from Southern Oregon State College, I graduated with a long-term goal and a short-term goal. The short-term goal was just to graduate, you know, and a long-term goal was to walk around the world as part of my education in the spirit and hope that I could be of benefit to everyone. And I didn't know what that meant either. <laughs> but I figured I would learn it along the way because this is part of my education. Yeah. I'm still learning. Gotcha. Okay. When I was watching you on stage today, hopefully it's not a crazy image, but this image came, came, came to my, but to me it's a beautiful image. Denzel Washington in the book of Eli. Okay. Now in that movie, he's walking west, you know, and, but you know, and of course in the, in the end you realize that that he's blind, but he's on a quest and he's just, just on his quest, you know, he encounters fights, he encounters people, he encounters people that he helps, those who try to hurt him, but he stays on this quest and he's really walking peacefully. It's like he's just ready for anything that comes, but he's really just, I'm just trying to walk. I'm, I, don't, I don't know what's there, but I got to take something there. And each time he had an encounter, he dealt with the encounter. I have a question for you about being in Montana, or if this happened in Montana, because when I was in Montana, I would have encounters. Uh, some good, you know, hey, how you doing? And then I would have other encounters where people would call me, like the N-word, they would yell it out of the vehicle and keep driving, you know, or, you know, toss something at me, you know, and keep, and keep going. And then in one of your stories that you shared, you shared, <laughs> even I was like, I can't believe he walked in that house. <laughs> you tell the story of walking in someone's house and seeing a bunch of guns. <laughs> but they still let you in, <laughs> and you still went in. He also said that they said, boy, my question to you as a black man, how did you reconcile that? You know, how did you manage yourself? Because I'll admit, I had a lot of rage in me when I was in Montana, but I used it to get to know people. I didn't use it to isolate myself, but I admit, I'm like, man, I'm in a place that I guess is not for me in a way, but really it is. And I had to work through that so that I could continue to engage with people. But I'm talk. But I'm talking. <laughs> you know, how did you do that? Uh, you know, and what was the motivation to continue? I don't want to assume that you had bad encounters, but I don't want to assume that you had all good encounters either. You know, so how did you like? How did you do that? Yeah, um, I guess I prayed. <laughs> you know, I guess I prayed. I mean, I was raised as a Christian. So that is just who I am, part of me. I, whether I'm in church or not, you know, that's part of who I am. And um, I had some encounters, one or two, where um, actually I can only say I had only one encounter where I thought my life was being threatened. And I wrote about that because it was very important um, to me uh, with someone who was an off-duty sheriff with a gun who had put it at my head. And uh, they said, we don't like the, that N-word, you know. We don't like them around here. Now you get going. And um, I did, I, you know, I started walking, but the whole experience for me was I'm alone walking on a trail. I see a car um, pull up and pull in front of me. Uh, and I know that something's going on because uh, being silent and being on fit, you become very sensitive. 
and I know that something's going to happen and something's going on. And I walk past the car and then I hear someone say, hey, hey, get back, come over here. And I know this is it. This is what's going on. And inside the car, there are two men. And one of them says, you know, what are you doing up here? And I go, I point at myself and push my fingers forward, you know, like I'm walking, walking my fingers down. And they said, you know, we don't like your kind of people here. Well, they didn't say it that nice, nicely. And then uh, he put a gun. It was a 44. I knew what a 44 was because it was a big caliber gun, pistol, you know, right to my forehead and it went click. Now, at the time it went click, and at the time I saw him, I recognized this person. I said, I know who this is. I know this person. Like, and I'm trying to figure out who is it. And just in that, that moment, I recognized this moment, this person is death. That's, that's why I recognize him, because it's death. And I want to say, of course you recognize death, because death is always with us. Because life, if there is life, there is death. And without death, there ain't no life. So in this, in this brief moment, I was like, oh, it's death. And I was like, oh, darn, I didn't do my painting for the day. That's what, that was the cross my mind. I, I'm getting ready to die, but I didn't do my painting for the day. I should have done my painting. And so when he said, you get going, his, his friend was very nervous. And I said, so I turned around, I started walking, and I turned around to look, and death was gone. I sat right down and did my painting, <laughs> right down, and because I said, now I got a chance to do my painting. Well, a few minutes later, another deputy sheriff comes by. He shows me his badge, and I'm showing him my painting, <laughs> and he says, I don't, I don't want to see, you're in big trouble being up here, and he says to me, just look at him, and I, he says, if I see you here when I get back, you're, gonna be, you're really going to be in trouble. And he drives off, and I sit back down again, and I finish my painting. I could see my home from the mountain that I was on, the ridge I was on. I could see Point Reyes in California. I could see it was all fogged in, so I could just see the top of it. And I walked down the Highway 1. And driving up through the fog on Highway 1 were some friends from my home in Point Reyes. And they said, John, John, it's so good to see you. You know, we heard you were walking back down because that's how it is. When you're walking, people say, oh, yeah, I saw John. He was up at Jenner. He was, at, he was up at Hill. He was, you know, walking down. And uh, I said, well, that's great. I could get in this car with them. He said, we're driving back up to Ashland. We're driving, and I said, I could get in this car with him and I could be safe. But instead, I didn't say anything. I just went down to the uh, river and put my camp up. And uh, I listened to the sound of a loon, which is kind of spooky sound. And that sound just healed me. It made me just forget about anything other than I'm alive and I have a journey. And it was like, should I end my journey now? Because no, death's going to catch you anyway. <laughs> You're going to run into death sooner or later, no matter who, no matter what you do. So I decided I was just going to keep living and keep walking.
and the next morning came up, that's exactly what I did. I know. It, I, I wish y'all could see our faces right now. We're just like, uh, wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm almost stuck. Speechless. Uh, wait, thank you, Doc. Hold on. I got to come back. Thank you, Doc. Hold on to this, my vulnerability and my embarrassment. Uh, <laughs> that was so profound. Now I have a question that I didn't plan to ask you. Do you fight having control over things or, do, or have you mastered just letting go of that? in life control oh we don't have control <laughs> we don't you know that'd be something if we had control that's a heavy responsibility right <laughs> can we have control no um i i think i spent my um life once i stopped riding in cars and started talking and trying to figure out who i was and to be that person and once i discovered that person of who I, my true self, then that's who I want to be. And what I want to do is just do what I feel like is the right thing for me to do. And that's why I'm here. You know, that's why, uh, how I got here, you know, because I walked across the country. If I hadn't walked, and I said that, if I hadn't walked, if I had not been quiet, if I hadn't worked at the Coast Guard and wrote all these regulations for the country, if, if I hadn't done any of those things, those are steps. Those are I wouldn't be here right now because I wouldn't have made those steps to be here. Wow. I just have a couple of other questions, Doc, because I feel like you are a walking philosophy. <laughs> you know, John Francis is a philosophy. You know, I just say Beyonce is a mood. John Francis is a philosophy. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I understand that you're running for Congress and and you love the planet, and you love people. And uh, one thing that you said, the, the two-syllable word that continues to reverberate in my head is kindness. And I want, how would you, or how do you, or do you talk to people about climate, climate change, the environment? You know, uh, do you converse with people, you know, about that now? And I'm just curious, you know, how, like, you know, how do you do, how do you bring people into that discussion? Well, it's, you know, climate change is very important. It's, and, um, and the environment is important. What I discovered was that, and this seems so simple, you know, someone says, yeah, people are part of the environment. And if people are part of the environment, then our first chance to, to interact with the environment in a positive way, in a sustainable way, or even figure out what we mean by sustainability is in how we interact or how we treat each other, number one. And so environment to me, when I started, was all about pollution. That's what I thought. And then as I, as I crossed the country and listened to many, many people and studied in, formally and you know, all the way up to a PhD, I realized that, no, it's, a, it's more than that. It's about human rights and civil rights and economic equity and, you know, gender equality, ec educational equity, every, every way that we relate to each other. I mean, more than I even just said, in all the ways that we relate to each other, because how we treat each other is going to manifest in the physical environment around us. You know, it's going to be pollution. You know, if we just 
if we just look at climate change and say, well, let's, let's change some regulations, or we just look at oil pollution and say, let's change some regulations, and we don't address how we live together, how we see each other, how we treat each other, then it would be just like putting Band-Aids on somebody's serious illness and thinking it's going to work. We got to, got to, got to, got to get down to the foundation of loving each other and being kind to each other. Because that's the only thing that's going to save us. That's what's going to save us. You know, that's going to, that's, I mean, we've been working on this environment so long. And you say, yeah, but we've been doing it, but, but it doesn't seem to be getting better. You know, what's, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. And that it's because we don't care about each other. We're not treating each other well. And part of that is just because of the economy, the way the economy's set up, that we have this, you know, what do we call it? Capitalism, where capitalism treats people and human beings as externalities. Mm -hmm. That we don't have to take care, we don't have to think about them. But if we really do have compassionate you know, compassionate capitalism or enlightened capitalism where there's more than one bottom line, where there's more than just the profit that gets in my pocket. But what are we, how are we benefiting the people around us? The company, how does the company benefit the people in this community? How does the hotel benefit the people in, that we're taking all this water and stuff from and resources from? How do we benefit? Well, we're training them to become workers in the, in the you know, giving them jobs working in the hotel. Maybe they don't want to work in a hotel. What are we doing for their general education, for their health? What are we doing for that? And so when our economy looks at us and say, that's, what, that's when I'm making money. That's when I'm making profit, is when I'm doing good for everybody. <laughs> that's what I want to hear. That's, that's when I know our, our environment is on the way to being healed. That's exactly what I keep telling people around, you know, when people are like, I did an interview yesterday and an, and an individual asked me, especially when I'm talking to black people, he said, so how do you bring climate change into the discussion? And I said, by talking about how people are being impacted by our climate and how we're impacting it, by asking them, how you doing? And he went, hmm? I said, I don't use the words climate change when I'm talking to people because we're, in, we're, we're impacting the climate. I try to test the temperature of them or find the temperature of them. How are you doing? And how can I work with you? So to hear from you, know, you as an amazing scholar that, and then of course you took it to a whole, a whole different level I think maybe I also got speechless because I feel like I'm doing something right. Mm -hmm. And to hear this from, from an individual who, like Dr. Maya Angelou was silent, you know, chose silence. You know, you chose to walk. I mean, you've sailed the Caribbean. You've been to South America. I mean, you've done this, you know, but, and then you come out with something that, and I appreciate how you said it's simple, but it's interesting that the most simple thing is the hardest thing for people to do because they're trying to stay complex. And I'm just like, no, let's come back to simple. So I just want to say thank you for being a beacon of that and an example. And then I guess I'll conclude uh, from my amazement of you by asking, can you tell us a little bit more about your book? Yeah. Um, the book has all those stories in it. Mm. You know, I mean, it's the journey about, um, it's my journey, which is our journey. You know, it's a metaphor for all of us because we're all on that journey. 
I just dis happened to discover I'm so lucky, so fortunate. How many people can give up riding in cars for 22 years and stop talking? for? I don't know. But to find myself in this place, I feel like, okay, I have a responsibility now. I have a response because I learned something. I learned something from, from everybody, from all of you. And now, okay, I got to say, so Earth Day, I chose Earth Day to speak because I, I want to remind myself that I'm going to speak for the environment. And that's it. I'm not going to change. And when I was getting my degree, I had a, a, um, a professor, a major professor, uh, whose name was John Steinhardt. And, and I didn't know John at the time. I didn't know like I was going to that university to work with him. But he had been in the Nixon White House. And uh, he had, was teaching science and government. That's what his course was. Well, he, he also wrote a book called Blowout, he and his wife, which was um, about the first oil spill in um, Santa Barbara. It was a blowout well. And it's what, 1969 it happened. And that's the blowout that propelled us onto the, the environmental movement. So it was an oil spill that pushed us onto it. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, because he said, you know, John, I don't have it so funny because he smokes cigarettes. And whenever he saw me coming into his, to his office, he would put the cigarette out and he'd be going like this. <laughs> and he says, oh, I'm so sorry, John. <laughs> he says, but you know, in, in all my years of teaching, he says, I've never had a student like you. He says, I never had a student like you. He says, and you're going to need, you know, you're going to need a PhD, this PhD, these three letters after your name. He said, you're going to need these. He says, I have no doubt that if you, when you get these three letters, you're not going to change. Your message is not going to change. It's going to be the same. But if you don't have these three letters after your name, John, the people who need to hear you won't listen. I just kind of scrunched how could he mean that? Do you feel mean? That? Mm -hmm. But then I saw that they'll make if you have those three letters after you. They won't listen to you anyway. <laughs> so some will listen and some won't. You know. But I tell people, look, it's very simple, and it, it's that we have to be kind to each other. We have to love each other. And if you need, if if you need a a PhD to understand what I'm saying. Turn around and run the other way, because because <laughs> <laughs> it's you don't you should not it should be accessible to everybody. Okay, now I do have one more question. Okay, because you have your thank you, thank you, you uh, because you have your son with you as well, mm. and here you are, twenty two years, seventeen years doing this work. How did you, I guess? continue to build or form your life, you know, uh, during that time and then after that time, you know, because I, you know, I wonder, was there an adjustment, you know, once you came and, you know, not out, I guess, but okay, I'm talking again. All right, I guess we'll keep going. And, you know, you were talking about even kind of like relearning the voice, like, is that, who's talking? Oh, that's me, mm -hmm. you know, but how did you, over that time, you know, besides camping and carrying everything on your back and now here you are running for Congress, you know, living in New Jersey. But how did you keep your, you know, keep that, uh, I guess, the, the life or the engagement or the, I guess, the stability? That's it. How did you keep that and now you're able to still have a family and do that? Like, how did you do that? I don't know. 
I just think you get up in the morning and you keep moving, you know. And that's what my, you know, dad would say. He says, well, everything's all right so far, but, you know, keep moving. You know, get up. I walk. I like to walk. I like to sit. I like to be quiet. Uh, I sit in the morning. I think it's up to about an hour I sit. So I get up early and then sit and think about, um, <laughs> well, think about uh, being grateful that I'm here, that I can just being grateful, and then about love and forgiveness and those three things, and then to let those things be and take me wherever they need to take me. But the last year I spent, I'm writing another book. I just finished another book. Okay. <laughs> and this other book is an illustrated book for children's illustrated book on the... Uh, the history of kindness, right? And I'll tell you, being able to get up in the morning and think about kindness and go to sleep at night and think about kindness, it's like, wow, what a, what a gift that is. So you don't need to write a book on it. You can just do that. You can get up in the morning and think about kindness and, and practice it and, you know, how you can practice it. And, and when you go to bed at night, think about, you know, kindness, but also be grateful, be, you know, hum humble. Humility is like this big, wonderful thing. It's like, oh my gosh, how grateful I am that to be this person. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I didn't know this person before. I lost that person and a lot of stuff, you know. Now I'm here and I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you for letting me be here with you today. Wow. With with, well, thank you. I, I, I thank you for your time. I thank you for this hindsight, insight, and foresight. You know, it, is, it seems like you have a vision and you're walking it. Um, you, I, one more. This is my last question. Is there a difference between confidence and humility? Um, a difference between confidence, confidence and humility. And humility. Oh, I bet you there is some kind of difference in there. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm always questioning myself, <laughs> and, which is the confidence, that part, you know. I'm always questioning. It's like, oh, God, John, is this, are you, you know. But then I think the humility just says, well, this is what you have to do. Take the next step. Just take this next step. We don't know where it's going. We don't know. When that person, remember that guy that we was familiar, when he's going to show up again? We don't know. So just keep taking the steps as long as you can take those steps. And, and remember that. Remember that, you know, we're on earth for a certain amount of time and to do the best we can while we're here. And that's the truth, man. Okay. All right. Well, everyone that's listening... I just want to say I hope that you are smiling from ear to ear like me and Chris, okay? I just I hope that you are rethinking your life in a beautiful way and really thinking about kindness, love, forgiveness, the world, yourself, and how we're all a part of it. Uh, Dr. Francis, um, I am better because I've come in contact with you, and I thank you for gracing me because this really is my privilege to be sitting in front of you. And thank you for saying yes to coming to visit Yale. And thank you for thank you for showing us by making a way.
because to me, that's what you did. You made a way. You didn't find a way. You made it. And uh, and I, I have a Christian upbringing. I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama. I spent time in Montana. And I know a person of God when I see them. So I'm thankful to be uh, sitting here with you. And I really do appreciate you, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm for real. Thank you. Thank you. Until the next episode, everyone, check your heart. Check your mind. And remember, you are special. We all are. We have something to add. We have something to give. And then from each other, we have something that we can take away to add to ourselves. And I, 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 I got my life today, Chris. Hardwood is a production of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies in New Haven, Connecticut. Our producer, engineer, and editor is Chris Perkins, a joint degree student between both the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies as well as the Yale School of Management, where he is getting a Master's of Environmental Management and a Master's in Business Administration. I am Thomas Richard Easley. We'll see you next time. Thank you.